on today's episode. I think one of the things that people don't realize around markets and investing, you know, I always say this, we're not in the business of being right. We're in the business of generating return because oftentimes you won't know what right is for six months, a year, two years. And so being right isn't necessarily as important as understanding how are people thinking, what will, what's the environmental condition they'll interpret three months, six months hence. Markets are driven by fear in many ways. Fear about losing money versus making money. Markets go down five times faster than they go up. It's pretty incredible. People do not like to lose money. At the end of the day, what drives decision-making is human belief. And it's, it's a big part of understanding technicals and how humans are going to react to data. I'm your host, Greg Fenbus. Stay tuned. This is One Big Question. Rick Reeder is the Chief Investment Officer of Global Fixed Income at BlackRock and one of the nation's leading minds in finance and economics. For his accomplishments in investment management, Rick has received numerous accolades, including just recently being named the 2023 Outstanding Portfolio Manager by Morningstar. His impact at BlackRock has been transformational, elevating its fixed income platform into an industry leader. Steered by his steady vision, risk-aware approach, and his focus on a research-driven investment process that combines both fundamental and data-driven investment analysis. The fact that Rick is making time to be on my podcast today is a big deal. Aside from his immense responsibilities at BlackRock, his leadership roles on investment advisory boards, and his many philanthropic engagement, he is also an in-demand commentator on financial media networks, shows, and podcasts. You'll find his interviews and sharp, clear-headed takes everywhere from CNBC and Yahoo Finance to Bloomberg and Barron's. So for an upstart podcast like One Big Question, it's a coup to have Rick with us today. And I forgot to mention, Rick is a proud Emory alumnus and a member of our Board of Trustees. So maybe that's probably the reason you agreed to this interview, Rick, and I'm very grateful. So Rick, welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. I'm excited about it. We're so glad to have you here. It's great to see you again and get together in New York in the BlackRock offices. So we'll jump right in. There's a lot happening in the economy and the markets in terms of how they're responding and anticipating the future. And much of it is anxiety-inducing for the average person. And I wanted to begin by asking you to take us through what is going on with banks right now. Can you explain what led to Silicon Valley Bank being taken over by the FDIC? And what effect, if any, it will have on the average person with a checking and savings account? Yeah, great. So it's, I'll tell you, there's a lot to go into this, but I'll, I'll try. And, you know, at the heart of it, it's a pretty simple concept that, you know, the Federal Reserve started raising interest rates and aggressively. And, you know, it started with last year. You know, the Fed was trying to and, and, uh, keep what was well-established credibility and the way they had articulated they're going to keep the funds rate, the Fed funds rate at zero, and they're going to continue to put uh, liquidity into the system. And they kept policy easy for a long time. And, you know, many would say too long a period of time. All of a sudden, you had this what was excessive levels of inflation. Some of this wasn't, wasn't the fault of the Fed. You had an extraordinary global war that was impacting supply chains, energy, food, et cetera. So you had this runaway inflation. The Fed was, was uh, behind the eight ball in that they had to start raising rates quickly. So you think about that. You keep rates at zero for a long period of time. 
what happens is every institution, every financial institution has a target. They have a return target. They have a, uh, an IRR target, a ROE target. They've got to hit their returns. You either get there by, uh, by organic yield or you get there because you put leverage on it. You get some yield and you lever it to try and get to your return target. So what happens is many of these institutions, you buy these assets 2020, 2021, all of a sudden rates move higher quickly and now your assets are all underwater. So now you've got assets underwater and then people realize, gosh, you're in a tough situation. What you're paying for your deposits and you're paying for your debt relative to what your, what your assets are, are yielding you, you're upside down. So all of a sudden people get nervous, they start pulling the deposits and then you get the quote unquote run on the bank. And that tends to feed on itself. And, and specifically, it feeds on itself. When you think about these, the raising of interest rates, you can buy treasury bills, the safest asset in the world, at 5%. It's like, do I need to keep my money? Do I have to worry about this bank? I'll just put it in treasury bills. So the money leaves and largely uninsured deposits that people are concerned about. Now you have the classic run on the, run on the bank. And so, <clears throat> and it, by the way, the epicenter of when you raise rates this quickly the interest-sensitive parts of the economy come under real pressure. And it's a long story about how this economy is really different than history. People say this is just like this scenario. You have a lot of the economy today that's not like it used to be in that you have interest-sensitive parts of the economy and parts that aren't. You think about technology spend. That's the big spending in the country today. That's not interest-financed. Commercial real estate is. Residential real estate is. Auto finances. So what's happening is you're really hitting hard those interest-sensitive parts of the economy, while the rest is doing fine, and hiring is doing fine. So you've got this weird conundrum that the Federal Reserve is in, that you've got a good economy, but you're bludgeoning the interest-sensitive parts of the economy, and obviously the banking system is you know, at the epicenter of that financing. Should I keep my money in my bank? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, listen, at the end of the day, I think, I think uh, quite frankly, you know, I think Treasury and, uh, and the Fed have been quite creative and, uh, and thoughtful and innovative particularly around the tools that are available to them without getting congressional backstop support. And so I think they've come out and said, you know, your deposits, people are in deposits are going to be safe. And yes, I, I would I would not be worried at all about money and deposit, in, you know, sitting in banks. Listen, there are also alternatives. I mean, people who are a little worried about it, and again, I think the risks are de minimis, but people are worried about it. Treasury bills, money market funds, there's a whole suite of alternatives. So I think there's some, listen, out of every crisis, there's a series of healthy things that come out of it. And people think about, gosh, how do I manage this going forward? Are there other tools that I use to manage my income, my wealth creation? So, you know, I think just like, just like every other crisis in history, there'll be some, some good things that come out of it. That's a good good way to look at it. Now you mentioned uh, Rick. You mentioned history, and you know people. The average person today sees what's happening in the economy and the volatility and the instability, and then they flash back to two thousand eight. But this is different than two thousand eight. How how is it different? You know, the one thing about crises is you learn from crises, but they're all different. I mean, they're all different. I mean, and, and you know, quite frankly, regulation usually addresses the issue that just happened. I mean, it always addresses the issue of fighting the last war. Right, and so. You know, those crises don't come up again. So it's always something that's new and different. And this one, you know, you think about, you know, talking about commercial real estate is at the epicenter of this one. It was residential real estate. It was the housing market before. And, you know, quite frankly, that is a much more pernicious event for the economy. Three quarters of the wealth in this country, people's wealth is in their home. When you create stress in the, in the residential mortgage market, it has a much broader impact than if it's commercial real estate, which tends to be you know, a much more refined set of who the investors are, et cetera. So that's different. 
The other is the financial system is in much better shape in aggregate. You know, certainly the big banks, which was, you know, again, the crisis last time, the big banks, the big financial institutions were under stress. That is that is quite different. And by the way, you're going to create new regulation for the non, what we call SIFI banks or the smaller banks, the mid-sized banks, and that, that will happen going forward. You know, the other, the other thing that I don't think people give enough credit to is if you go back in, in 2007, 2008, you had a very levered, a very debt-laden economy. Consumers were levered, you know, using their home as the ATM, as it were. Uh, corporates were levered. Financial institutions were levered. You know, there's four, part, four parts to borrowing in the country. It's the government, it's consumers, it's corporates, and financial institutions. Three of the four were very debt-laden back then. Today, those three are actually in pretty good shape, save some of the some of the re- regional smaller banks that we talked about. You know, the one that is growing the debt is the government. The government is the best place in any in any economy, it's the best place to have the debt because you can tax and you have so many tools at your disposal. So, it's different. It's not a, it's not going to be near as severe as that crisis was for for all the reasons we described, but like I say every um every one of these you know, is uh, you got to think through it and think about, you know, where, how do we come out the other side? And there's a lot of work getting done on that. Good, good. Well, you mentioned uh, wealth building. I want to bring this back to, to Emory and our BBA program, our Bachelor of Business Arts. We have a BBA investment fund and a financial literacy program at Emory's Goizueta Business School. And what are your thoughts about the importance of financial literacy and what can we do across the nation with young kids, uh, young people, adults, to improve understanding and make sure that individuals, no matter who they are, what their backgrounds are, have access to wealth building strategies and opportunities? So, man, I think it's one of the, um, you know, one of the things as a, as a country we need to, we need to fix in a, in a variety of ways. You know, I watch people that work two jobs, three jobs, and they're working incredibly hard, but they're not managing their finances effectively. And you think about you can enhance your well-being and quite frankly, you know, from a quality of life perspective, you know, be in much better shape if you're managing your finances better. If you're figuring out how do I manage my wealth, how do I manage my expenses, how do I think about where do I where do I keep my money? How do I plan for retirement? A big part of what this firm is all about is helping people plan for retirement and so that, you know, their later years are, uh, are more effective. It is such a big deal today. And, uh, you know, I watch it all the time. Listen, I, you know, I'll take it all the way back, as you said, you think about college and you think about students now, you know, the, the cost of college. And, you know, when people think about, gosh, if I can save effectively and if I think about, you know, what it does for me later in life, you know, managing your finances and thinking through your finances effectively. And if you do it, or particularly early on in your, uh, in your life, you know the you know how it enhances your life. Whatever you consider to be success, which isn't necessarily monetary, whatever you consider your ability to get to college and then expand what you do and allow you to succeed in however you want to succeed, it is just critically important. And I watch so much of it is is wasted. And and I, and I think I think this is one of the great you know for a place like Emory to be able to contribute to society, to uh, to enhance people's education around this. I think it's just hugely important. Yeah, that's one of the things I see talking to young people, um, and as you said, there many of them, many of our students are, you know, have to work hard to uh, to get to Emory, uh, work hard to be successful. Uh, we want to make an Emory education uh, affordable uh, for for every student, and they get that first job, and then they say, well, you know, why are they taking out three percent or five percent for retirement? I, I'm I'm worried about today, 
And so how to think about uh, the short term and your day-to-day life, but also plan for the long term. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's actually just critically important. And, you know, the whole concept that, you know, we learn in finance around compounding. If you have a plan, if you have a strategy and you consider, you know, how, you know, if you have a, a long-term strategic goal set around it, you know, the benefit to you could be could be tremendous. And, uh, you know, certainly in terms of work-life balance, how you, how you, how you run your life, I think it could be hugely important. So the economy and the financial markets exist in a, in a complex society uh, where you know, history and political science and understanding society have always played a key role. And in, in so many ways, business reflects society and the markets aren't just about the, the math and the data and the trends. And what do you see are the, the role of understanding uh, the humanities and the social sciences and how is that reflected in your work today as a leader in the finance industry? You know, I think people underestimate. So first of all, I'll say even indirect from finance in business, I always say the best classes I ever took were marketing. Like if you have a view and a set of ideas, you have to be able to convey them effectively. And marketing actually was, I always, people ask where your favorite classes in business school was marketing. But Greg, I think one of the things that is um, that people don't realize around markets and investing, you know, I always say this, we're not in the business of being right. We're in the business of generating return. Because being right, oftentimes you won't know what right is for six months, a year, two years hence. And so being right isn't necessarily as important as understanding what do people, how are people thinking, what will, what's the environmental condition they'll interpret three months, six months hence. And markets are incredible about the psychology and, and, and fear. Markets are driven by fear in many ways, fear of there's an asymmetric fear about losing money versus making money. Markets go down five times faster than they go up. It's pretty incredible. People do not like to lose money. <clears throat> but then there's the, then there's the, we talk a lot about the fear of missing out, FOMO, that that drives people like, gosh, the markets are moving. I'm not in it. So understanding the psyche, what are people, you know, we always think about interpreting what's the psyche going to, going to, uh, going to look like or how people can interpret the environmental condition three months from now, six months from now, because you may not have the answers to what you're trying to figure out. So our research, you know, we spend hours and hours on research and analysis, but oftentimes I think you have to think about what's your time horizon and how are people going to, you know, going to react? We use immense amounts of data, artificial intelligence. At the end of the day, what drives decision-making is human belief. And, and it's incredible. By the way, with the growth of social media, media, social media, that is ubiquitous in our lives, it's pretty extraordinary that, that people move in herds these days. And so there's a great art, not that I figured it out, but there's a great art to you want to ride with the herd and then you got to go against it. And like, how long do you want to ride with the herd? And then you want to get off that train and then you want to go the other way. And, and it's a big part of understanding technicals and how humans are going to react to data. That's uh, that's that's fascinating. Yeah. So it's really a human business. It, it's incredible. I mean, and the and like I say, the uh, by the way, it's also taking price and thinking about you know things. You get into these modes, and people get nervous about whatever the event is, and then price is your is your equilibrator. Like you know, has it gotten to a point where the, where psychology has moved to a certain place, but the price has factored that in already, and it's like okay now. The price reflects the human condition, and now's the time to buy or sell or whatever it whatever it is. But 
It's amazing about how trying to interpret that is arguably more important. I would say this, the technical condition is more important than the fundamental if you're investing for the short to intermediate term. If you're investing for 10 years, they're not going to, then obviously the fundamental being right is pretty darn important. So tell us about uh, your personal journey. How did you decide your profession? How did you make decisions to get where you are today? So that's the first part of the question. And the second, based on, on your journey, what do you have general advice for students who are asking, you know, what path do I want to pursue? What are my goals? And how am I going to achieve them? So, uh, you know, I had a crazy uh, – I had enough people know this. I transferred to Emory, and it, Emory changed my life. Part of why I'm so passionate about the school, and I met my wife there, and my, my brother met his wife there. And my daughter just met her fiancé there. And so, no, I, but it changed my life in so many ways. I transferred. I was studying, and everybody's different, but I was studying. I remember sociology and history, and, and it didn't – it doesn't click for me. My mind is wired. My, both my parents were entrepreneurs. And business really clicked in for me. And, and Emory had this business, had a business school. And when I transferred and all of a sudden, you know, whether it's understanding debits and credits and accounting, like I get that. I don't – sociology, I, I struggle with. But I think for, you know, for people understanding – and I, I, had, I had a rough uh, academic beginning in, uh, in, in college and I was on academic and social probation, which I think is the uh, – is like hitting the daily double. But the um, – I just can't, I couldn't get motivated because I wasn't, I wasn't inspired by what I was taking. And by the way, for everybody, it's different. And some people are inspired by those classes, but I wasn't. All of a sudden, when they, when you get the ball rolling downhill of, gosh, I'm inspired by business, I understand it. Then, I mean, it's just like one thing leads to another and, and you work harder. And, you know, I think for, for young people, I mean, I think the key is what inspires you and what's going to get that ball rolling downhill faster. And, uh, and I think once you hit that, then everything in your life, whether it's professionally or personally, what have you, can have this incredible sense of momentum to it. So, you know, I think probing, asking a lot of questions, talking with people about what were their experiences, you know, what is and like did, what clicks for you and what motivates you. And I think the earlier you can get that, I wish I got it earlier in my in my career. But I think once you get that, then it uh, then it just becomes, you know, like I say, a cumulative effect on you. Well, it seems to have worked out okay for well, you. I don't Rick, know. Some so. days I wonder. <laughs> so as you, as you now uh, reflect uh, on your career uh, after you graduated from Emory, what are you know, one or two just really key moments that defined who you are and the, and the trajectory that, uh, that you pursued? Well, early on, I mean, they, uh, once I, I think it was my grades in, uh, in my freshman year, uh, my middle trimester, we had trimesters, and when I realized how bad they were, and I realized my dad's reaction to that, that was an inspiring moment for me of, of uh, time to change, <laughs> time to change my life. But the, um, you know, I, you know, Greg, when you go back in time, you know, I think there are nodes in your life and that you think about, and almost every one of them was created by a person that I was lucky enough to work with or be around or that had this had a great sense of wisdom. And I remember when I applied for jobs uh, out of out of college and out of business school, you know, everybody in similar to what we talked about before, everybody goes in the same direction. Like you got to work for this firm. And I remember when I was coming out of college, uh, Drexel Burnham was the hot firm. Like everybody had to go work for Drexel Burnham. And of course, I didn't get a job and uh, I tried and, and they, they rejected me. 
you know, then the firm goes out, it goes out of business. And, um, but, you know, everybody moves in a certain direction, but it was people, there was somebody in my life that, that literally I was going to go into, I was, a, I was a, a corporate strategist and somebody said, try sales and trading. And, and she said, you've done corporate strategy before, you know, you can do it and go back to it, try something different. And I did, and she changed my whole life. But I, it's always, when I think about all those nodes in my life, whether it was a great mentor, whether it was somebody who just had me think about things a bit differently and take a path that maybe was a bit more adventurous or a bit more risky, but potentially really dynamic, then, uh, you know, that was, that's always been key to me. And all of those situations um, have been key, but all around an individual who really, who really helped me. So that advice, try something different, is is very valuable advice. I said I, I say that to my kid, to my kids all the time, that you know you never really grow until you're uncomfortable. And I you know I say whether whether I'm going on TV or speaking in front of a thousand people, whatever, like that those jitters and that being uncomfortable, you grow every time you do it. And you, and I think you got to be uncomfortable to grow. And uh, and you know it's not a natural human feeling. People would rather not. But I think you got to be. And I think that's you know taking that risk and being unco- being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Is, uh, is, is a pretty key to, uh, to growth, I think. I, I agree. Well, that's a great way to end this podcast. Uh, Rick Reeder, we really appreciate uh, you taking time out during the trading day. The markets are open, uh, coming downstairs to, to talk with us. Now, it's been the highlight of the day. Now I have to look at markets again. All right. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks. very much. Rick. Thanks for having me.